If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, so you can go there. We are uh, starting a new series today called Lamb and Lion. I'll explain uh, kind of the details and what's going on with it. Um, But before we do that, I want to talk about last week. Um, If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to listen to that sermon. It was Psalm 126. And <clears throat> it was a, uh, a standalone sermon. We had just finished First Peter. And we did that one little week. And now we're going into a different series here. But we saw, looked at Psalm 126. And there were two big major points as we looked at in Psalm 126. Uh, and out of that sermon came a, a pretty big uh, goal for us as a church. Here's the goal for the church. Every person that's in the church that's a believer in Jesus for the next 10 years, the next decade, share the gospel with an unbeliever once per week. So anybody that doesn't know Jesus, you tell them the gospel once per week. And then the next week, you tell the next person. And the next week, you tell the next person. Um, new person every week, just one person per week, which is not too difficult. Um, and if we do that, just us, if no one else in Rock Hill uh, is doing this, no, no other churches, which they are, and if no one gets saved and joins us and helps us, if it's just us by ourselves, t- if we tell somebody the gospel, just one person per week, we would have told every single person in Rock Hill in 10 years the gospel. We, we, we can trust God with the results. I think people will get saved. A little bit more on that in a second. Um, but there's 75,000 people in Rock Hill. If all of us share the gospel once a week, that's 6,760 times over the course of a decade, we'll get close to hitting uh, the 7,640 times or 60 times, and we'll hit, we'll hit everyone in Rock Hill um, in 10 years. So um, I want to encourage you to continually do that. If you like, ah, oh, I forgot this week. Ah, listen, now you're going to start with us because there's a little bit of like times in there where if everybody doesn't do it, then we'll, we're going to catch it. And we're going to talk about this a lot. It's not something that we just kind of mentioned in one week. He, here's the statistics. Uh, what do y'all think? And then forget. Like we're going to talk about this as, as, as often as we possibly can. Let me give you a couple a couple things, though. Um, if you heard that last week and you thought to yourself, well, that makes me nervous. <laughs> That's, I don't want to do that because X, X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. Um, even, if, even if you don't like it, if you're not doing it, then certainly it doesn't hurt to, to start, right? It doesn't hurt to start. But here, I want to tell you one little verse, and I think this will encourage you all, for those that are scared, for those that are nervous, for those that are fearful, for those that are like, that telling puts it at a whole different level, uh, for me, and, and it makes me nervous. In the book of Acts, chapter 18, Paul was in Corinth, and he was a little bit discouraged. He had shared the gospel with some people, and they hadn't received it. He did share the gospel again with some other people, and they did, but he's still a little bit discouraged from it, and Jesus himself, if, if you look in the book of Acts, which is after the resurrection, anytime you see red letters, I mean, this is pretty astounding, right? Jesus has showed up to talk to people, and in this particular verse, Jesus shows up and talks to Paul in verse uh, 9 and 10, so Paul's feeling a little bit discouraged. Uh, some people hadn't gotten saved, and, and he wanted them to. Others did, but it says, it says this, and <clears throat> the Lord said to Paul, at one night he appeared to him in a vision, and he said, do not be afraid while you're here in Corinth, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Now, let's be clear. Those are directions to Paul. That's the meaning of the text. I understand. However, there's a great application for us here in regard to evangelization of a city. Here it is. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. You're nervous. You're scared. You're fearful. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. And this is where it gets awesome. 
for I'm with you. And then he says, no one will attack you uh, to harm you. And then here's the best part. For I have many in this city who are my people. So in a lot of same ways, Christ is saying, go on speaking. Don't be fearful. Don't be silent. Because there are people in this city that are mine. So go tell them about me. And let's see what the Lord would do. It could absolutely amaze us. It could absolutely amaze us. Now, to give you some, some uh, understanding, we, we talked about this last week. We have someone in our church that, that wanted to pray. So he asked, Jordan, come to my, my work and let's just pray about the Lord starting to give me opportunities to share the gospel with my coworkers. And Jordan said, okay. And he went and they went to pray. And as they sat down, this is what I promise this is what happened. The coworkers came to their table and asked what they're doing and asked why they're meeting. And as they were talking, they said, well, we're talking about Jesus. And they said, okay, tell me all about it. So Jordan went to get to pray about in the future sharing the gospel. And as a result, um, Jordan and Andres got to share the gospel with everybody that he was working with at that particular day. And he just went to pray. That's one awesome, awesome result. Second one, um, this past week, Joel's been doing a Bible study for, for months and months, or years, I should say. Um, and there's just a guy that lives across the street that's been coming for a few months. Um, and so this guy came this past week, and at the end, he hung back, and he's talking to Joel. Uh, and Joel's like, you know what? I, I just thought he was a Christian because he always brought a Bible. Joel shared the gospel with him. He got saved. The day after the sermon, Joel said, I'm going to do it. Shares the gospel, the guy gets saved. So this is one day after the sermon last week. So that I said, if no one even joins us, and now we have someone that already has, right? Not us, but you know, Jesus. So um, the Lord, I think, is going to, I think, continually bless this because, as Colossians 1, 6, the gospel is always bearing fruit and growing. The gospel is always going and bearing fruit and growing. And so let's, um, let's continually share, let's Keep, continue to go on speaking and not be silent um, because, I mean, that's what the gospel does. It bears fruit and grows. So let's see. Let's see who in this city are Christ's people. So let me pray. Uh, and I'm going to talk about this all the time, but let's pray. And we're going to go into Hebrews now, chapter nine. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love and your mercy. Um, you're so kind to us. We pray now as we look at your word that you would come God, I pray for myself. This, this is definitely a, uh, a complicated text. And so I pray that you would help me speak clearly, that it would be clear to us all. And uh, at the end, we wouldn't just have more theology. While we want that, certainly theology enhances our love for you. But more than that, Lord, our lives would be changed. We would find ourselves in absolute awe of this amazing good news and your plan to save us. So help me speak with clarity and that after that we would all be challenged to want to live differently for Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in a new series called Lamb and Lion. What, what's going on that we would start a series called Lamb and Lion? What's going on? So here's what's going on. Um, we're starting this new series leading up to Easter and it's called Lamb and Lion because as in every year, we try to, as best as we can, um, with texts and even, you know, 
sermon titles, if you will, to draw the sharpest of contrasts that we can between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, between the cross and the resurrection, the darkness of one um, and the beauty and brightness of the other, the absolute sacrifice of one and the sheer power to resurrect Christ in the other. So as much as we can, we try to draw that contrast from Good Friday, the cross, so that on Sunday, when we get to Sunday, the contrast is so bright that the resurrection shines even brighter to us and illuminates our hearts with joy even more. And so the Bible itself offers um, contrasting language, metaphorical, but lamb and lion are certainly contrast. If you throw them both in a cage, there's not going to be a chance where the lamb's ever going to win. It's not ever going to win, ever. And so, um, in the same way, the Bible offers this contrast of language describing Jesus, that he's both the lamb and the lion. He's the lamb, the meek, the sacrifice, the pure, the spotless, the gentle in being the sacrifice, but he's also the lion, the powerful ruler, the conqueror of death, Satan, sin, and death, and he rules and reigns. I mean, he is a strong, strong conqueror. So, In this short little three-week series leading up to Easter, our hope and prayer is that we would be able to highlight the lamb-like qualities leading up to Easter um, of Hebrews 9 and 10. uh, To be able to see that he's the sacrifice, the pure, the spotless, the gentle. In order to draw a major contrast so that when we get to Easter, we can put a huge spotlight on Christ on Resurrection Sunday. And our hearts would begin to beat faster Our pulses would begin to soar. Our awe of him would be heightened and our affections for Jesus would be stirred and our joy would be aflame for the lion who defeated Satan, sin, and death on Easter. Now, we want to do that every Sunday. I agree. Um, But the contrast that we try to draw is to make Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, even greater. So we're going to do that for the next couple of weeks by falling down into Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 11 and looking at the sacrifice of Jesus as the lamb in Hebrews 9 and 10, leading us into Easter. Now, before we drop down in the middle of Hebrews, let's, <clears throat> let's talk about the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was actually a sermon. Um, imagine that, a sermon. If you read the whole thing out loud, it would take about 50 minutes. So, um, you know, I'm in good company, 55 minutes. However long it takes you to read Hebrews, if my sermon's that long, then you have nothing to say. That's what they did 2,000 years ago. So um, I know they're a little long. Anyway, um, so it was written though. Here's the thing. If you've ever read Hebrews, it's quite dense. It's very, very, very dense. And the writer, um, we don't know who it is. If I say Paul, it's because I think it's Paul. Wrote to the Hebrews, wrote to people who are Jewish that had just an intricate understanding of the Old Testament. And all he's doing in the entire book of Hebrews is trying to, for them, um, encourage these Christians. So these are Jewish people who are Christians who are in time of trial. And he's trying to encourage the Jewish tri- Christians in time of trial by connecting Christ to the Old Testament by doing this. Trying to show them that Jesus is supreme And the death of Jesus was completely sufficient for their sin. That's interesting, right? Consider this. Think of this. He's saying, be encouraged in your time of trial because Jesus is supreme in everything. Be encouraged in your time of trial because Jesus' death for your sin is absolutely sufficient. Now, if, if you're like me, you're thinking, how's that encouraging? Why is that encouraging? 
That doesn't seem to be encouraging because he's not saying be encouraged in your time of trial because God is going to make you awesome and strong in this trial. Instead is be encouraged in your time of trial because Jesus is supreme. That's the opposite of where I think we're going, right? To be encouraged. Be encouraged in your time of trial because his death is absolutely sufficient for your sin. That's, that's not what I would think would be encouraging. But what's wrong with me? Uh, well, a lot of things. Christy can attest. But here's what I'm trying to get to. Do I find it helpful for Christ's supremacy to be um, highlighted for me in the book of Hebrews? Do I find that helpful in times of trial? Do I find it helpful to, for the writer of Hebrews to say, Jesus' death is absolutely sufficient for your sin. If I don't find it encouraging and helpful in time of trial, what does that say about me? What does that say about my view of man versus my view of God? Likely that my view of man's too large. Likely that my view of God's too small. What does it say then I, that I, as I read the scriptures that I need for them to be more about me than about God? It says I have a wrong view of the scriptures. What does it say that if I want to learn more about the man-centeredness of the scriptures rather than the God-centeredness. It says that uh, I'm drawing encouragement from the wrong wells. I'm drawing Now, we're, um, hopefully as we get to this, we're going to be encouraged. Um, there is some density in this. There is some, some depth of theology as we look at Hebrews chapter 9. Um, and we are starting right in the middle of the book. So uh, remember though, as we're looking at this and we're seeing some some pretty depth of theology about Christ's sacrifice um, and how it compares to the Old Testament. The point of this is to be encouraged in time of trial because Jesus is supreme. So if Jesus is supreme, then you've got nothing to worry about if you're a believer. If he rules and reigns and is, is, is as strong as, as anyone ever and his death is absolutely sufficient for your sin, then what do you have to fear? All of your sins taken care of. So it is encouraging, but we have to realize that it's not about us and it's not for our glory, but for his. So we're, we're, we're plopping down here um, into Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. So let me explain to you, since we're starting basically in the middle of a point, in the middle of an argument, in the middle of a pretty big point that's going on, that uh, what the author's trying to do right now is explain to us the difference between the first covenant in the Old Testament and the sacrificing of animals and the new covenant um, and the sacrifice of Christ. And he's explaining the differences between the Old Testament and how you had the high priest who would make the sacrifices and carry the blood in there. Um, and then in the new covenant, how Jesus, so the high priest um, would make the sacrifice of the animal. And so those are obviously two different things, the, the high priest and the animal and how he, he would kill the animal and then take the blood in there for a sacrifice. And in the new covenant, how Jesus is like the high priest. He is the mediator. He is the one who's worthy enough to, to walk in to offer the blood, but also he's the lamb. So in the old Testament, you have both, but here you have Jesus being both the high priest and the lamb. He's the one who's worthy to carry the blood in to make the sacrifice, but it's also his blood that he's taking in as the lamb. So as I said, it's a, it's a very complicated thing that we're talking about here. I'm going to, Lord willing, uh, explain the implications of it and how it relates to us um, and how we can understand this text. But that's, that's where we're, we're jumping down into. Uh, we're going to start at verse 11, but remember that's, that's what's going on is that 
the writer is explaining the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament sacrifice, the, the, the sacrifices of the high priest and how Jesus is uh, the supreme version of all that. So verse 11, but when Christ appeared as high priest, remember uh, in the Old Testament, you had the high priest, but the difference is that high priest was a sinner. That high priest was flawed. That high priest was imperfect. And so he had to consecrate himself just to be able to be the high priest. And because he's flawed, uh, it had to be done yearly. And because the animal wasn't the perfect spotless lamb, it was just an animal, it had to be done yearly. And so there's major differences between the two. So when Christ um, appeared as the high priest in the new covenant of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, parentheses, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. So it wasn't like the old covenant where it was the blood of animals instead it was the lamb of god jesus the lamb who was slain by his blood thus securing eternal redemption that's the contrast eternal redemption before it secured annual atonement but only a temporary reprieve christ secures eternal redemption major difference For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, if in the Old Testament it did something temporarily, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. So in the Old Covenant, you have the animals being sacrificed, but they're not sufficient. In the new covenant, you have Jesus, the one and only sacrifice for all time. Now the wrath of God has been fully satisfied to telestai. It's finished. It's over. And the perfect sacrifice has been offered. So there's a huge difference. Now, you probably noticed something and you might have asked yourself, what does that mean? And if you weren't here when we did the journey, um, specifically the Leviticus sermon, chapter 17, and I'm assuming maybe even if you were here, you don't remember it. Um, let me explain what it means. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the, thing, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent. Okay, so here we have in verse 11, the greater and more perfect tent. And then right after that, in a parenthetical statement, not made with hands that is not of this creation. So here we have obviously Two different tents being mentioned. So there's a tent and there's a tent. And here's what this means. So you have the tent that's made with hands, human hands. And in the Old Testament, that's what he's talking about. Where you have the place where the, the, the high priest offers the sacrifices. But that's made with human hands. But we also have, as it says, the greater and more perfect tent. So there's, there's another tent, if you will. And it's the one that's not made by human hands, but instead God made it. Where is it located? Not on earth, but in heaven. And this is, the, the reality is that that is the greatest and most perfect tent. What happens in that tent affects all of creation. And so when Christ died um, on earth, he was the mediator and the lamb. And his blood was taken into the greater and more perfect tent and offered as the sacrifice. And that particular sacrifice, the real sacrifice, the once and all sacrifice that didn't happen on earth, but happened in heaven, the, the blood being offered, Jesus' death happened on earth. When that happened, then it was the perfect sacrifice and it, it secures for us eternal redemption. So the sacrifice of Christ in the greater and more perfect tent, the, the blood of Christ being offered in the greater and more perfect tent, that's why it offers eternal redemption. And whenever that happens... You can, you can go down and said, um, 
Verse 14, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself uh, without blemish to God, here it is, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So here's the first thing I want you to see. Um, We're talking about Christ's sacrificial blood, the lamb. He is the lamb of God, the slain lamb. The first thing in verses 11 through 14 I want you to see is this. Christ's blood cleanses or purifies our consciences. How does it do that and why does it do that and what's the point of doing that? All right. Jesus is the high priest who enters in and since he's the only high priest that's able to enter into the greater, more perfect tent because he's not a sinful, imperfect high priest, but the perfect high priest, he's able to go in there. And so when he went in there, unlike the tent on earth, which only offered an annual atonement, when Jesus went in to the greater and perfect tent, it offered eternal redemption. That's what it says in verse 12, eternal redemption. Because Jesus is the great high priest, he's able to actually secure eternal redemption. And now, because we don't just have a temporary annual atonement, but eternal redemption, what happens now is that we are completely clean of our sin. Our consciences now are completely pure, as it, to use the language of verses 11 through 14. So this is what we mean by, we say, purify our conscience. Um, Every one of us knows that something must be done. The doing language has to be used in order to have a right relationship with God or to be able to please God. Something we know inside of us that we know we must do things in order to please God. So since we know that something has to be done, we try. Outside of a relationship with Christ, this just means we try to do good stuff for God. You know, feed the poor, uh, Help people across the street, you know, not lie, not cheat, not steal, do your taxes right, you know, whatever. We try to do those things. Um, And we know that when we do those things, we think that the scales are going to be balanced because those things are going to outweigh the bad things we do. And then God's going to finally be happy with us. We're going to please God. But here's the thing. Without Jesus, without knowing Christ... Every person in the world tries to do these good works. But whenever they do these good works and they're not in Christ, the writer of Hebrews says those good works are not good works. Instead, verse 14, they're dead works. To purify our consciences from dead works. So without a pure conscience, all the good works you do are dead. Dead upon arrival of being any kind of value. Here's why. Because outside of Christ... All the good works that you do, though the action might be done right, the motive behind them is always done with an attitude of pride or an attitude of self-pity or an attitude of lust or an attitude of envy or an attitude of jealousy or an attitude of covetousness, attitude of apathy or fear or whatever. In other words, all the good works we do, even though they might be in themselves an action good, motive is they're still sinful because motive is they're done for the glory of me, not done for the glory of Christ. No one that's outside of Christ, does things for the glory of Christ. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. And so those good works are dead works. And so the scales aren't balanced. And so your conscience isn't clean. Because anything you do is not done with a clean conscience. Enter in the great high priest Jesus, who's also the lamb. And when he offers his blood, 
in the greater and holy tent, what happens is he, eters, he secures for us the eternal redemption. Se- security of eternal redemption, therefore, gives us now forgiveness of all sin. And forgiveness of all sin gives us a pure conscience. That means we don't stop doing works. But now when we do works, it's no longer, they're not dead because they're no longer done to try to please God and earn favor or curry favor because all of that was because of Jesus. The only right standing I have with God is now because of Jesus. And so now the works I do aren't trying to earn favor. So they're not dead on arrival as good works. Instead, the works I do are worship. They're done because I have been saved. Or to use the language of verse 14, the works I do are now to serve the living God. That's how it says in the very end of 14. By the way, the word serve there, laturo, is translated as worship sometimes in the Bible. So they are done as worship to the living God. So the works now can be done with a pure conscience because I'm not trying to curry or earn favor with God. All my favor with God is absolutely dependent upon Jesus being the eternal sacrifice for me. And now I have the ability to do Acts of worship or good works purify our conscience from dead works. They're no longer dead, but they're good. And all the works I do are now serving God, worshiping God. So Christ's blood secures for us or cleanses our our consciences. And I should have put this in order that now you're free to do good works. So the pure conscience is for this purpose so that you would continue to do good works. So don't stop ever doing good works as a believer. As a matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 tells us this about our good works. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Lord's design is that we would do good works. There's no question about that. Titus 3. But these, this zealousy, as Titus 2 and 3 says, zealousy to do good works is based in the fact that we're already forgiven. And so we're doing it as worship. We're not doing them in order to be forgiven or earn favor with God. So the blood of Christ purifies our conscience so that we can now do good works to serve him. That's the first one. The second thing I want you to see is in verse 15. It's, the, uh, it's to lead us or to help us see that Jesus Christ is the, should be the, the final and only recipient of all of our worship. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant. So we're talking about Jesus being the high priest. In verse 11, Christ appears the high priest. That means he's the mediator. He is the one who's able to make the sacrifice. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised, look at this, eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions or sins committed under the first covenant. So in the first covenant, we were given the law. And in that law, we realized that we're all sinners. And because we're all sinners, there's no way that we can ever earn salvation. And so the, the old covenant, while it brings death, the new covenant brings life. Because Christ Jesus is the mediator in the new covenant, that calls people to trust in him. And when he does, he gives them, as it says in verse 15, the promised eternal inheritance. Not temporary, 
but eternal inheritance. So characteristics of the old covenant, you have two parties, God and Israel. The covenant's sealed by uh, the death of animals that were offered to God. And the New Testament, sealed by the death of Christ offered unto God. In the Old Testament, it's the blood of those animals that are sprinkled on the altar and the people. In the New Covenant, it's the blood of Christ sprinkled on the, as it says, um, greater and more perfect tent. And that's what gives us eternal inheritance or eternal redemption. The covenant in the Old Testament was ratified or approved or sanctioned um, by the people who promised to be obey God. And here it's ratified and approved by Christ. And we now get to live in radical obedience to God. So we can see the difference. And the whole point that I'm trying to point out to you in this is that Jesus is the mediator now. Not the Old Testament imperfect high priest, but now Jesus is the great high priest. In the Old Testament, the mediator was a sinner, imperfect, and so forgiveness only was annually. But in Christ, as the mediator, he's the perfect um, high priest who's able to give, offer the sacrifice on behalf of his people. And because he offers it, not the high priest, it brings us eternal inheritance. And because not an animal was sacrificed, but the Lamb of God, it brings us eternal inheritance. So the whole point of this is that in every way along in the new covenant, it's all about Christ. He's the high priest and the Lamb. So because of that, that means for us, all of our affections, all of our thoughts, all of our life, all of our worship, all of our good works are to follow suit. They're supposed to be all for and all about Christ. So the second thing is Christ's death in the first covenant and the first covenant or versus the first covenant. And it leads us to a response that all of our life and all of our thoughts and actions are to be worship unto God. Free worship. We want to do it. Which brings us to uh, this next thing I want you to see in verse 16. Now, uh, before we get into it, depending on the translation you're using, if you're using the ESV, it won't be a big deal. Um, but if you're not, you, you might see it. So um, the word diatheke, uh, it just means testament or covenant. On, on the front of a New Testament, Greek New Testament, it'll say kine diatheke, new testament, new covenant. That word diatheke can also be translated will. As in, you know, if I die, I leave a will and my kids get my stuff, right? That's, so depending on the context as you read it, sometimes diatheke is translated will. Sometimes diatheke is translated covenant. Sometimes it's translated testament. Here it's translated diatheke will, as in, uh, you know, you leave a will for people. Now, the reason why we know that is because uh, of the context. First of all, you can see in verse 15, we're talking about an inheritance. When you think about an inheritance... Just don't think about churches and Bibles and Hebrews. Just think about inheritance. What's the first thing you think? You think, somebody died <laughs> and I might get something. That's what you think. And that's what we're talking about here. And you're going to see here in will uh, that, that in verse 15 for where a will is involved and that's DFAK, that's the right term. Um, it's not necessarily uh, a covenant, although it is a covenant, but will makes most sense because you're also going to see... Um, because it says where will involve the death of one um, must, made, must be established. In other words, if somebody dies, you have to show that they're dead in order to get their stuff, right? If you're one of the inheritance. You can't just say, so-and-so died, you can give me their stuff. They'll be like, we need to know that they're dead. Because if they're still alive, you can't, you can't just take their stuff, right? Um, 
and hopefully you wouldn't just want to take their stuff. You'd want to be a, you know, a good son, good daughter, and love them and want them to live, etc. So anyway, back to this. Um, here's the point that we're trying to talk about is there's a will. And this, this will is going to have radical effects. Now, this is interesting language for sure that the writer is going to use the language of will. But it, it fits when you look at it. Um, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. So if you're gonna if you're gonna collect on the will, that person must have died. For it will for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one um, as long as the one who made it is alive. I mean it's just real obvious. If you make a will and you're still alive, it doesn't take effect yet. Not until you die. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. So we have the fact that in, in verse 18, it says, therefore, not even um, the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So th- the death of things had to happen in order for the, the inheritance to start being given. And even in the, new, in the old covenant, in the first covenant, death had to happen. As he's, as he's saying this, he's pointing us to when he says in verse 22, under the law, almost everything is purified. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood uh, in verse 21. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels and everything in, in, the, wor- um, in the worship service or in worship. What's happening here is in Leviticus 17, 11, there's a verse that helps us understand the necessity of blood and why blood is so key in all of this. In Leviticus 17, 11, it says, for... The life of the flesh is in the blood. Just think, the reason why you're alive is because you have blood. If you don't have it, you're done. We're all done, right? So the life of the flesh, or the reason why you live, is in the blood. For I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. So blood makes atonement for souls because it is itself what keeps the flesh alive. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, the blood is is in the life, or the blood is life, therefore the blood gives life. Does that make sense? Because the blood is in you, and it, the blood is the actual life, then when blood is offered, the blood can give life. Just make the easy spiritual connection there. Because Jesus' blood was given, and the blood is what keeps us alive, his blood is what gives you spiritual life. And so, back over to the will talk and what's going on here, um, which is it's quite interesting. New Testament commentary explains the, the use of this will. He says this, the implication that's being made here is this. So you have, in, in any will, you have the writer of the will, you have the person that the will's written about, and at the end, you have the executor, the person that makes sure it happens. So if, if I were to die, you know, the lawyer writes the will, and it's about me, so it's about me dying. And then after that, usually the lawyer is the executor or maybe a judge or whoever. He says after that, he looks at it, and he's the one that, that makes sure everybody gets the thing. And in here, he's trying to help us see that everything here is God. Everything. 
because it's all about him and not about us. The implication is that the maker of the covenant or the will is God who has also made a will. Christ the son is not the maker of the covenant, but God is. Christ functions as the mediator and as the guarantor. He sees that the conditions of the covenant are met and that its promise is honored. So the executor has to look and say, have the conditions been met? Yes. So this person has died so an inheritance can be given. So Christ is the guarantor or the executor. But not only that, is he not only the executor, um, he's also the person that has to die. This is where it gets tremendously interesting. Functioning as a mediator, as a guarantor, he sees that the conditions of the covenant are met and that its promises are honored. Christ died to fulfill these conditions. So he's also the one who died. But at the same time, Christ's death validates the last will and testament so that believers indeed may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So just think of it this way. No one will ever get to be the executive of their own will. It's impossible. If it's about you and you die and then you come back as the executive, every, everybody's freaked out and you, know, and you, don't, get, you don't get away stuff anymore because they're alive, right? But here's what the point he's trying to make is why it's all about Jesus. God wrote it. Christ really died. And so because of that, because he died, as it says in verse 15, we get eternal inheritance now. Life forever, and then he comes back to life in the resurrection, and he's the executor since he died, and he is, for all those that he calls, going to be giving out the inheritance to all of those who trust in him. For all those who trust in him. So this is, for us, Christ's blood, his death, or speaking in this will language, secures forgiveness. Hence, if you get all the way to 22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And here it is. But without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is so no forgiveness of sins. So, since Jesus died, then we have forgiveness of sins. And since our sins are forgiven, he can be the executor. Since our sins are forgiven, to hand out inheritance. Two things have to happen in your life in order to be saved. Your sins have to be forgiven and you have to receive the eternal inheritance. And so verse 22 makes it plain to us that since Christ died, his shedding of his perfect lamb savior blood gives us the forgiveness of sins forever, not just a temporary reprieve, but forever has bought us, as it says in verse 12, eternal redemption. Now that we have eternal redemption, he can also give us as it says in verse uh, 15, the eternal inheritance. Now, I know that that's deep. I understand that. <laughs> um, lots of theological language. But here's the point that we, we need to realize, is that Christ's blood secures forgiveness for us. And so since Christ's blood secures forgiveness, now, and it should say, we get the eternal inheritance. Now, if you got an inheritance, an earthly inheritance... I mean, how, how jazzed would you be? You'd be pretty happy. What can we do? We can get some jet skis. We can get a boat. We can get a house. We can pay for college maybe. You know, whatever for our kids. There's all kinds of things that run through your head. And you get a little bit excited. And you're like, oh, or we're going to save it. Or you know, we're going to give it all to the Lord. You know, however, whatever you think, right? Maybe you think that. I think that'd be awesome. How much more excited should you be to know that you've received an eternal, eternal inheritance. Saved forever. In heaven forever. With Jesus forever. 
as a child of his forever. I would say far more. And his blood is the thing that bought for us forgiveness of sin and gives to us the eternal inheritance. All right, here's the last one. I have a sneeze coming, so it's gonna, it's gonna happen anytime now. Just heads up, they're loud. I'll try to cover the mic. All right, verse 23. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see. Thus, it was necessary for the copies. I know it's coming. <laughs> there it was, all right. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Okay, now we're back to the copies language. Here's where we get back to the two tents, if you will. Another one's coming. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. It's that time of year. All right. Thus it was necessary for the copies. Now, when we're talking about copies, we're back to the two tents. The heavenly, greater and more perfect tent, as it says in um, verse 11. And then the tents that are made with, with hands, created tent. And that's, that's called the copy. And so you can see, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. So it was necessary for these things to happen annually with the high priest and the animals. You just, can you look back and say, well, that seems pointless. I mean, if that just, that was it. If Jesus died on the cross and offering his blood in, in the greater, more perfect tent is the thing that secured eternal salvation for not just everybody in the future that puts his trust, but everybody in, in, Old, in the Old Testament, the whole point of this. So here it is. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with the rites. So they needed to have this ongoing purification, but we need to know something about the copies. Copies have a point. Copies' point aren't to cleanse. Watch this. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ, here it is. Remember the, the, two, the two locations. For Christ entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And when he offered, he offered his blood. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not of his own. So it's not like he's got to do that annually because he's the, the great high priest and the great holy lamb that was slain, not flawed, somewhat sinful, not perfect, spotless, but as best as we can get versions, but the lamb of God, who is also the great high priest, went into the holy of holies. It only has to be done once. Um, Nor was it offered himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood on his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. So he would have to keep doing it. And that's that's not what happened because... As it is, he's appeared once, once, for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin. Notice that's not sins, that's sin. We'll talk about that in a second. That means the whole concept of it, by the sacrifice of himself. So the copies were necessary, but only to point. So here's the first thing. We're talking about Christ's perfect sacrifice. Here's the first thing I want you to see, is that copies don't cleanse, they point. Let me illustrate this way. I can remember back in college, um... I went with Matt and Andrew uh, to go see the movie The Matrix. And I remember like watching it all the way through and just thinking to myself after it was over, man, that was awesome. What? 
<laughs> what was that all about? There's no way I understand that. The only way I can understand this is if I walk out this building, buy another ticket, and go right back in and rewatch this whole thing again. And maybe I'll get it. I think that's what I did. Uh, so I went back in uh, and watched it all again. But it blew my mind, like the concept of this. And it wasn't just, uh, I love the story so much. It wasn't just, you know, the, I don't know that little thing. But it was like the, the story, right? The story is what was so awesome. And it wasn't until later I realized why it is that stories like this, we love them so much. Because, just notice, the Matrix. You have Neo, the chosen one, uh, pulls out the people out of this fake, false, illusion life that they have that controls them, causes them to finally really be born again. And he, at the very end, dies for all of his people and comes back to life and frees them. What does that sound like? What does that sound like? Or Harry Potter, right? Who's willing to die for his friends in order to save them from evil. There is Harry Potter right there. Sorry, I ruined it. <laughs> but that's, that's, what does that sound like? Or, hopefully you're with me on this, Lost, right? Jack Shepard, Shepard, they picked that name intentionally because he was the shepherd that was willing in the end to give his life for his friends so that they can experience redemption and live. And I know at the end they move on to the next place. That's where it got really stinky. But in the end, the whole idea is that, what does that sound like though? So here's the deal. Why do those stories intrigue us? And any story that's really any good is just a retelling of the story of Jesus. If they're not a retelling of Jesus, we generally don't like them. They even call that person the, the, the savior figure in, in storing. So the reason why is because copies draw us in. But here's the thing. Um, copies aren't meant to save. Like Neo can't save you and Harry Potter can't save you and Jack Shepard can't save you, right? But they can point. They can point. These things... These animal sacrifices aren't meant to cleanse. They're meant to point. We don't save. Right there it does. They point. Copies don't cleanse. They point. And these little stories, they point to the greatest story. They point you to the real Savior. Now, I realize all uh, illustrations break down. My illustration of my copies breaks down because the one that God uses is actually in the Bible. And, you know, I know Matrix isn't in the Bible. But I think you get my point, if you will. Here's the thing. Um, the point is this. Copies are never meant to cleanse. Copies are never meant to cleanse you. They're never meant to save you. They're only meant to point you to the real Savior. So if we just, uh, I know it's not the point of this text, but you certainly can make this application. What copy are you trusting in as your Savior rather than the true Savior. Fill this sentence in. If I could only have, blah, then finally everything would be great. If I could only have my spouse, if I could only have that kid, if I could only have that job, if I could only have, if you're not saying Jesus, that's your functional Savior. It's the thing that you think is going to save you from whatever's happening in your life so that you can finally have this. And this thing's a good thing. Your wife, your job, your husband, your, your kids. But it's not your savior. Copies don't save. They don't cleanse. They point. So this thing, which is supposed to just be a good thing, that makes your heart 
love God for this, but points you to a radical love for God, this good thing has an O removed and it's become your God instead of just good and it's your functional savior. So what copy is it that you're giving your affections to? Because copies are never meant to save. They're only meant to point. If you use them to point, you're using them correctly. So your spouse is a good thing. Your children are a good thing. Having a job is a good thing. And you take that with love in your heart to God who gave it. And it's something that points you to God. And you say, thank you. Same thing with the Old Testament. Those things are never meant to do anything but point them to their only salvation, which is in Christ. So that's the first thing under point four. There's something else I want you to see is this. Uh, there is no improving the atonement. There is no improving it. In other words, Jesus dying on the cross, one time and for all, there's no better thing. It doesn't get any better. There's no other way to get saved. There's no way that that could get, ever get better. If it had just had more time, if he had just gotten more seasoned, if he was just more mature, then he would have even been a better. There is no improving it ever. He's God. And so since he's God, he doesn't improve. He stays the same. He has to stay the same. This is the, the theological word immutable. He doesn't change. If he changed, that means he wasn't God whenever he died. He, he's the highest pinnacle point of anything that ever could be. He won't ever get better or else he wasn't God. He won't ever get worse or else he doesn't become, stay God. He's the highest point and always stays there. And so because of that, this death, this atonement can never be improved. That's why it says in verse 26, he has appeared once for all. Never to be done again because this is the best atonement there ever could be. It is, the, it is the only atonement. It can never get better. He's appeared once for all at the end. So this once means this. Never to be repeated that what he did when he redeemed all people from past, present, and future that trust in him, that death is absolutely enough forever. Once for all. Not only that, once for all at the end of the ages. That means Christ's death 2,000 years ago is the central focal point of all human history. But also he's coming again in the second coming. And we live in the space in between these two of the central focal point of human history and his second coming. We get to live in this forbearing time where God is being patient. He's forbearing with us and not coming back. And our job then is to plead with every soul. We're living in this special time right now where Christ is going to come back and he already has come Trust in him. Don't take him to Hebrews 9 because maybe it's kind of complicated for an unbeliever. Take him to another text or maybe this one if they're super smart and say, here's the gospel. I'll show you the great gospel in verses 27 and 28. Don't read it. We're going to get to it. But you can take him to verse 27 and 28 and say, here's the gospel. Trust in Christ. His sacrifice is absolutely, absolutely sufficient for you. It saves you from all your sins. There is no improving the atonement because once for all, the end of our sacrifice is to put away sin. It's not sins. It's not to put away the individual thing of you stealing, the individual thing of you cussing, the individual thing of how you lie, the individual thing of how you... It is those things, but it's to put away sin. So you've got Adam and Eve in perfect relationship with God. There is no sin in the world. And then whenever they ate the fruit, they became no longer 100% human uh, in that... Uh, they were perfect. They became 100% corrupt human. They fell. And now everybody that lives in Adam is corrupt. 
We have a corrupt human nature. And it's sin that causes all of us to do all these things. And when Christ came, he dealt with sin. All of it. And when those who trust in him, this is the great thing. Because he dealt with sin and put it away. Not bit by bit anymore like in the Old Testament. He dealt with sin as a whole. He defeated it all. The flawed, the corrupt human nature we have because of the fall has been dealt with. And here, this is awesome. Now, the effects of that corruption have been reversed. And for those that are in Christ, whenever we get to heaven, we return to our first state and our first parents. And all the corruption of sin is gone. Think, think about this. Think about this. This is, this is astounding. Whenever I think about this, it just blows my mind. There will be a time in heaven where you will have interactions with other humans and there will be no sinful thoughts about it. You'll never say anything sinful. You'll never think anything sinful. You'll have perfect relationship with other people. I, I, can't, even, I can't even imagine that. I, I want that so bad. That'll be our status one day. I mean, it's, it's inconceivable. That's what dealing with sin did. Once for all, the end of ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Sacrifice language. Lamb language. Animal language. The sacrifice of himself. This is signifying his death on behalf of someone else. That's what a sacrifice is. It's death on behalf of someone else. They didn't deserve it, but they did it on behalf of someone else. Christ didn't deserve death. He did it for us. And he did it in order to remove the sins of many people. So Jesus sacrificed himself. Jesus became the Lamb of God. And this becoming the sacrifice, this becoming the Lamb, is so important. It's so instrumental in the language of what happened 2,000 years ago that this is pretty awesome. The perfect spotless Lamb that was slain that's spoken of here 2,000 years ago is literally sung about forever. The nomenclature or the language that's used 2,000 years ago about the title of Lamb forever is going to be sung. It's such a powerful picture being painted for us that in heaven, this is what happens. This is Revelation 5. The lamb language is so instrumental in understanding. In heaven, who knows how long that is, we're going to be singing. And, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw the lamb, capital L, standing as though he had been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, and there are seven spirits God sent out into all the earth. I know it's got some, some language we don't understand, but just concentrate on the lamb part. And when he went and took the scroll from the right of him who was seated on the throne, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 living elders, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. In heaven, they're ca calling him the lamb. Each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, what, what are the words of the song we're going to be singing in heaven forever? Would it have anything to do with the lamb? Worthy are you, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed the people for God and from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom priest to our God and they shall return on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the voices of, of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands. I mean, just picture this. Millions and millions of people standing up in heaven. And what are we singing? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And to every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, we saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So this sacrifice language that's being used for us in Hebrews 9, 26 has eternal effects in the way that we sing to our king forever. He's the lamb that was slain. And so, in heaven, he'll be the most lion-like lamb, lamb-like lion you've ever seen. Meek, gentle, willing to be the sacrifice, but the ruler and conqueror of Satan, sin, and death, and rules everything forever. It's, It's an amazing contrast of this metaphor of bringing them two together. And then he concludes with this amazing, I mean, just astounding gospel. 27. And just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that, the judgment. Why why does he talk about death? God uses death language on purpose. It's not to scare you. It's to make you aware. Here's the truth. You're gonna die. You're gonna die. That thought and the coming judgment is not meant to just make you like, oh, God's big. Instead, it's to make you say, okay, that is an absolute truth. Let that be the impetus or the catalyst or the thing that makes me stop playing with my life and realize I'm going to die. And after that comes the judgment where I stand before the creator. This is far more serious than I thought. Just as it is appointed for every man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So, Christ having been offered once, this is the gospel, to bear the sins of many, everyone who trusts in him, that's the many, will appear a second time. And how does he deal with those that are not in Christ versus those who are? Those who are not in Christ get the judgment. Those who are in Christ, not to deal, but to save them who are eagerly waiting for him. One last little thing. Why didn't he just save save those who were waiting for him? But he said to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We're living between the cross and the second coming and the, the forbearing period. And what's descriptive of us is that we are to be eagerly waiting for him. Not just waiting, doing our thing, but eagerly waiting. Wanting it bad. Living out, verse 14, living our lives as worship serving the living God because our consciences are cleared and we're not doing dead works anymore, but real good works for the Lord. Eagerly waiting for him. Lord, thank you so much for saving me so that I can live my life for you. Eagerly waiting for him. Because the reality is this. You're gonna die and comes the judgment. So the only appropriate response of living is eagerly awaiting his arrival. Amazing. It's just amazing gospel. That we don't get judgment, but we get our sin dealt with and saved forever. Eternal redemption, eternal inheritance. So back to the big question. Is that encouraging in times of trial? Don't be, don't be nervous. Be encouraged. Jesus is supreme. 
Don't be nervous. Don't be uh, scared during your time of trial. Christ's death for you absolutely sufficient for your sin. (laughs) I think that's amazingly encouraging. Everything has been done by him and everything he did was for him, for his glory. And we're the amazing recipients. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the fact that you are the lamb, the gentle, spotless, pure lamb that was slain. The plan was written before the foundations of the earth. The death was carried about by Jesus. The executive of the will is Jesus who gives to us eternal redemption, who gives to us forgiveness of sin, who gives to us eternal inheritance. (laughs) So we eagerly live, we eagerly wait, we eagerly do good works for you. And in times of trial, what is there to fear? Nothing. Instead, we live in this moment of forbearance. Wait while you wait for your second coming. Desperately pleading. Desperately pleading for people to come to know Christ. We live in this moment while we eagerly wait for you to come knowing that sin has been dealt with. It does not rule or reign over us anymore. And the effects of the fall have been reversed. And we have the power by the Spirit to not sin. We have the power by the Spirit to kill sin. It's absolutely stunning. God, may we now sing to you like we will one day in Revelation 5. Because you're worthy. Praise in Jesus' name.